0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word.
1: Now, don't withhold your hand. What he's saying is just scatter. Just scatter. You don't know what I'm doing yet. Don't try to guess what I'm doing yet. Just scatter. You don't know which one's going to proper. Just sow your seed. And let me develop it. And you know what the cool part of that is? When I did that, then it gave us a testimony because I didn't orchestrate things. I didn't plan things. I couldn't turn around and say, well, the building we're now in or the property that we now hold. And I got to tell you, praise the Lord, because he even knew when he gave us this building that this season of time was coming. And he gave us acreage and we're able to meet out here on a Sunday morning at nine o'clock in the beautiful grounds this morning. But, but I can't take claim for that because the Lord did it. I just scattered, and the folks here were just scattering their seed to see where the Lord would lead, and he did that. I knew in that moment that God was saying, so in both directions, and I'll make it clear which one will prosper. It was a perfectly timed passage for that very moment, and God had set in place that passage long before I had ever gotten to that moment in time. Do not underestimate. Let me say this clearly. Do not underestimate how God can do this, even with messages that you hear from, from a pastor teaching as you hear, I would say, as we move verse by verse through the book of Scripture. You know, I've often had people say, well, don't you feel this topic would be appropriate for the time we're in or this topic? And my answer was, you know what, I'm committed to moving verse by verse, and I trust that the Lord knows what verse we need to be given you know, on a given Sunday to minister to you. I trust that before the foundations of the earth were ever laid, he knew what passage of Scripture we needed to be in on this very Sunday to minister to you. God has things perfectly timed in advance, and we see that here. Secondly, Jesus clearly attributed this passage to himself. There's no questions about it. This was a long accepted passage that the Jews knew as referring to their coming Messiah. And Jesus, without a doubt, is telling them that it was written about him and that he, standing before them in this very moment, was the fulfillment of it. So for those who say that Jesus never claimed to be Messiah, you're sorely mistaken. This simple statement makes the point clear that he absolutely did. And number three, in, in in reading Isaiah, you will note, if you know these scriptures, that Jesus left out an important portion. Jesus actually stopped in the middle of what would have been verse two in our Bible. Remember, they didn't go by Bible verses, but Jesus stopped before he finished the entire thought in that last verse that we have there in verse two. Jesus actually stops there. Here's how the entire passage reads. This is directly from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Did you pick it up? You will know Jesus left out the reference to God's vengeance. Was this an oversight? Absolutely not. Jesus didn't accidentally leave it out. He left it intentionally out. Why? Because it didn't apply to his present ministry as it had to do with judgment, which was not what Jesus' present ministry in his first coming was all about. Later, Jesus will say about his own ministry. He'll say in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. In John chapter 12, verses 44 through 47, John records Jesus saying this, John 12, verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You see, Jesus declared that the the purpose in his coming, his first coming, and that's important, his first arrival in the flesh to this earth wasn't to be a ministry of condemnation or judgment. So there was no need for him to read this portion of the text from Isaiah, which is speaking of these things. But remember, this is only true of the ministry associated with his first coming, which is what he was dealing with here in the synagogue, but not to the ministry or the mission of his second coming, which is what this portion of Isaiah he has left out has to do with. Jesus will return and he will fulfill that role as well. But that is a future role. It was a future role in the day that he was speaking in the synagogue, and it is a future role even as we stand here today. It's not a present role. Include even now in the era of history in which we live. His ministry of judgment, his messiahship of judgment has not yet come. Now, this is something important, because I'm just going to be frank with you guys. This is something that's really bothering me in Christianity today. And I see the attitude growing more and more with with each passing day as the, the world spirals into deeper and, and deeper sin and, and Christians get more and more agitated by it all. I find that the way that, that too many Christians are presenting Jesus as judge and executioner for more, more than they are presenting him as Redeemer and Savior. As sin grows, we're, we're jumping ahead in our thinking and witnessing to a day of judgment for mankind that has not yet arrived. We're, we're presenting Jesus to people as the one who is going to send them to hell for their sin, rather than presenting him as the one who wants to rescue them from it. Now, we need to be very careful about this. We need to be very careful. We need to be careful to present Jesus as he presently is and not to confuse it in people's mind with who he will one day be. Now, this does not mean, and I'm saying this, please pay attention to me here, please don't attribute words to me that I have not said. This does not mean that we don't speak about sin or that we don't speak about the penalty of sin or that we don't speak about the reality of judgment or of hell itself. You know, despite Jesus making the statement that he didn't come to judge or condemn, he still spoke of the consequences of sin, and he most certainly spoke about the reality of hell. But he always did so with an outstretched hand, offering redemption from it all. And here, I think, is where the difference is, especially today. We say we only want to talk about judgment for sin and the reality of hell to make people aware so that they'll turn to Jesus for salvation. But but my sense is that far too often redemption of sinful men and women is the furthest thing from what's on our hearts and minds. Justice seems to be what's motivating us more and more. The darker the world grows, the more our sense of justice seems to be growing. The desire to see men and women get what they deserve is what's motivating us more and more. We're becoming like the disciples when the people of Samaria failed to respond to their message and they wanted Jesus to call down fire. They wanted to do it in his name. But Jesus' response to them is the same response, he says, to us who are of the same mind today. Here's what he said in Luke chapter 9, verses 55 through 56. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Be very careful, folks, that we're not hearing the Lord say this word to us. You don't know what manner of spirit you are. You're trying to destroy when I didn't come to destroy. You're trying to condemn when I didn't come to condemn. As Messiah, Jesus will one day fulfill the role of avenging judge, just as Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 tells us in its fullness, when it's it's read in its entirety, but as was the case in that moment when Jesus read this passage and intentionally left that statement out, it's because that day of fulfillment has not come yet, and it has not come yet today. Stop trying to make Jesus fulfill a role that is not yet time for him to fulfill, but instead keep resenting him in the role that he did come to fulfill. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When you look at the characteristics of who Jesus was reaching out to, the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, it's not just talking about the the innocent people that we would look at and say, well, they just don't know the Lord, they're just innocent, they don't understand. But if they hear the gospel, they'll respond, well, praise the Lord. But you know what? This is, we're talking about the hard-hearted person. It's talking about that person who you see burning down buildings right now in parts of the world. It it refers to the homosexual that's caught up in that. It refers to the drunkard. It refers to the drug addict. It's talking about the people whose hearts may be the hardest of all. And yet Jesus said, this is who I came to liberate. This is who I came for. Do we need to tell them the reality of where their sin will lead them? Yes. But it's not their behaviors that are leading them there. It's their heart, their condition of sin. That's leading them there. The the other stuff is just the symptoms of where their heart is. Jesus wants to reach their heart. He wants to break them free. And if you and I only go in a condemnational mode to these people in a judgment mode of you're going to get what you deserve, who of us can even say that? (laughs) But if that's how we go, how will they ever be reached? Yeah, they need to know the truth. They do need to know the truth that it's sin. They do need to know the truth that there's a literal hell. But what they need most is to know the hope of a Savior who died so that they would not have to face an eternity in hell. And verse 22 connects to this. It goes on. It says, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Here Luke seems to indicate that Jesus continued speaking to them, possibly elaborating more on what he had just read and said to them about what God was doing. We don't know for sure because Luke doesn't record it for us, but what Luke does tell us is that what he was saying to them was filled with grace. If you mark your Bibles, underline that. Gracious words, highlight it, circle it, exclamation points, arrows, gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. See here, connecting to what I just said is the difference of much what I see in in Christian writing and and what I hear Christians saying today. And, oh my goodness, social media, if I wasn't on there just for the church, I don't think I'd be on anymore. I can barely stand it. What I'm seeing in the hearts of Christians. In in, in anger over sin and, and a desire to drive home their message against sinful things and sinful people and sinful behaviors, grace seems to be more and more lacking in it all. Words are harsh and sometimes downright nasty. We we mock, we belittle, we call people out for their sin and their sinful way of thinking and behaving, and behaving, and we seem to take spiritual pride in doing this so directly, so confrontationally. It's like it's it's God's Spirit that has imposed this mission upon us and it's empowering us to do it in this way. For some, it seems to be driven by the idea that if we fail to confront like this, that we're compromising by appeasing sin. This is not of the Lord, folks. I'm just telling you, this is not of the Lord. It's not to how we're to respond to people and to sin. When I read my Bible, I don't see such a way of dealing with people being undertaken by Jesus. Well, this is all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament was designed to point us to the one who would fulfill. The Old Testament was fulfilled with prophets that were speaking to the nation of Israel. We look at the New Testament for our response to Jesus, who it was all pointing to. And you can't find Jesus doing this with one exception, the exception of, of the religious leaders who knew the scriptures. They had the scriptures, and they were responsible for the people, and they were abusing the role that they'd been given by God or had taken for themselves in the name of God. Totally different than the way he dealt with the common person in sin. And there's nothing in the New Testament scriptures would indicate that this kind of graceless style of confrontation that is so prevalent today is something that the Holy Spirit even produces in the New Covenant, believer. It's certainly not a fruit that the Spirit produces, because in Ephesians 5, we're told this, right? Ephesians 5, I'm going to highlight some words, and you should mark them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, underlined, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, underlined, long-suffering, kindness, underlined, emphasize, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, underlined, self-control, underlined. Against such there is no law. Now Think about this for a minute. Where is such harsh, rude, direct, demeaning, mocking, angry, frustrated, graceless kind of calling out that we see happening today by Christians listed anywhere among the spiritual fruit being described here? We don't because it's not there. In fact, where it is found is in a completely different list. Not a list of things produced by the Spirit, but a list of things produced by our human flesh. Paul writes in the preface to that portion of Ephesians 5, in beginning in verse 19, Ephesians 5, 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, underline it, Contentions, underline it, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, underline it, selfish ambitions, dissensions, underline it, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We love this passage because we point to all the things that we see the sinful world doing. Say, that's the work of the flesh, It's the work of the flesh. But we ignore the things that are us, <laughs> that we're doing. Now, look, I'm not saying we're losing our salvation. Yeah, this is not our pattern. Maybe we're just in a season where we're just not paying attention to what the Lord's Spirit is speaking to us. But these are wrong for us. This is not should not indicate us. It's a work of the flesh. But wait a minute, Pastor Randy. Don't we have a spiritual responsibility to call sin, sin? Aren't there times when we simply need to confront people with the reality of their sin and where it will lead if they continue in it? Of course we do. (laughs) Of course we do. But we also have this mandate from Scripture as to how we're to do that. We're told Paul writes in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 Walk in wisdom, Where does wisdom come from From the Lord, right? From the spirit working in us, the same spirit that produces this fruit I read, the good fruit, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, self-control. From the Spirit, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Who are those outside? The unsaved, those that don't know the Lord, those who have are out there doing the crazy stuff you see happening, or your neighbor who could care less just wants to get drunk on the weekends and party to those outside redeeming the time. Listen now verse six he goes on, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You hear what he said? Let your speech speech where? Not in church. Yeah, it should be there too. But your speech to these people who he just talked about, those who are outside, that you're redeeming the time of seeking the wisdom from the Lord on how to respond. He says, let your speech always be seasoned with grace. Grace is not the compromising of truth or the ignoring of truth. That very always takes them to extremes. It's not that. It's not the ignoring or the compromising of truth, but it's truth being shared with hope given. Truth being shared with hope, given a desire to see the change, a belief that change can occur if they'll just listen. Salt, salt, seasoned with salt. Salt can serve a lot of purposes. It can create thirst, it can preserve, it can cleanse, and all three of these purposes get worked out when we speak truth with grace. Truth spoken with grace can work to create a thirst in people for more truth. Truth spoken in grace preserves the truth being spoken in the heart of the hearer. Truth spoken in grace can cleanse the infection that's being addressed. It might sting at first, but if applied in the right way, it can bring about cleansing and ultimately healing. And Ephesians 4.15, we're given one more important way where to communicate with people. Verse 15 of Ephesians 4 says, But speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Speaking the truth in love means faithfully speaking the truth, but speaking it with patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and with the intent of helping, not destroying. You know, the, the fruit of the Spirit is not... It's plural. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it begins by saying the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it goes into the rest of the list. And I believe the reason it does that is because love is the fruit. But the rest is just the characteristics, the different aspects of love, patience, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It all comes out of love love. Speaking the truth in love means faithfully speaking the truth, but speaking it with all of these aspects in play. Truth spoken without love is a terribly blunt and damaging, even destroying sword in the hands of the user. But truth spoken with love is a sharp surgical scalpel that has the potential of bringing healing by getting right to the root cause, cutting out in a way that person doesn't even realize that the surgery is happening. See, this is what Jesus did. This is what he did. He spoke openly and directly to people about their sinful lives. But as this passage reveals, he did it as we're commanded to do it, speaking with grace and in a way that it was seasoned with salt, and yet most certainly out of a heart of love that he had for even the worst of sinners. You know, I personally believe that so much of our communication about sin is not like this. I believe much of our communication with people is being driven by our flesh and not by the Spirit who always reflects Jesus. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a big and grievous mistake when we're not reflecting the heart of Jesus, but we're reflecting our flesh. We don't need to compromise truth, nor should we ever compromise truth but we do need to speak the truth in the way that Jesus did it, with grace, salt, and love. Jesus knew how to use that sharp scalpel and not the blunt sword because he wanted to heal people. He didn't want to destroy people. And we need to follow his lead. And and so having read from the Scriptures and spoken to the people, Luke now goes on to describe the various responses of the people. In fact, he describes here, whether you know it or not, two very conflicting responses. First response, all bore witness to him and marvelled. In other words, their first response was one of true amazement. They were blown away by what he was saying. They they recognized that what he was saying was graciously powerful and different, and it was spoken with authority. and And his words were impacting them, and they were quick to acknowledge that. But then, the next response is this: "Not Joseph's son." <laughs> this statement. Whether you know it or not, is actually a statement of doubt and skepticism. It's their, what they're saying is, who is this guy to be talking to us like this? This is Joseph's boy. This is the carpenter. What in the world would ever make him think he's anybody or in such a position to talk to us like this? Where is he getting all this from, anyways? We have to ask, how could people respond in these two completely opposite ways so quickly. Simple. The first message, or rather the first response, was a response to the message and not the messenger. It was a response to the messenger and not uh, the message and not the messenger. What Jesus was saying and how he said it resonated with the people. It made sense spiritually. It blessed them and it refreshed them. It was different than the teachings that they were hearing from the, the religious leaders. There was authority behind his words. But the second response then kicked in because they stopped listening to the message and started looking at the messenger. They stopped listening to what he was saying and started to look at him personally. And as as he was speaking, they began analyzing Jesus, the man, rather than keeping their focus on what he was saying, which revealed the heart of God within. They were looking at the externals, the preconceived notions they had about him. And it triggered a completely different response, a response that ultimately caused them to reject the powerful message that he was delivering to them in that very moment. You know, Mark, in his account of this moment in his gospel, specifically tells us that this was what the people did. It says in verse 3 is this in Mark chapter 6 in verse 3 is this not the carpenter the son of Mary and brother of James Joseph Judas and Simon and are they not his sisters here with us so they were offended at him Mark plainly tells us what was happening here I, I, even though only a moment ago they marveled at what Jesus had to, had to say they quickly shifted their focus and began to look at more at who he was Or rather, who they knew him to be. Jesus the townie, Jesus the homeboy, Jesus the son of Joseph. And they were offended at him when they did that. Offended literally means to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way upon which another may trip or fall. To cause a person to begin to trust one whom he ought to trust and obey.